0: Welcome to Sport Faith Life. I'm Chad Carlson.
1: And I'm Brian Bolt.
0: We're two guys from rival schools who came together with one common purpose, to think deeply about sport and faith. We're sports scholars, we're coaches, and we're competitive athletes, or at least we were. And together, we've created Sport Faith Life, a conversation that meets at the intersection of sport and faith.
1: Today on Sport Faith Life, we welcome New Testament scholar Dr. Brian Gammel. Brian graduated with a BA in microbiology from the University of Missouri, but instead of going on to medical school, he started work in ministry. He went on to earn an MDiv at Duke University before heading to Baylor to complete his PhD in New Testament. Currently, Dr. Gammel is a postdoctoral research fellow at Baylor's Faith and Sports Institute and is part of a team that will host the fourth global congress on sport and christianity at baylor university just three short years from now we can't wait to talk with brian so let's get started
0: we are so excited to be joined today with dr brian gamel from baylor university and uh dr gamel excited to have you here um wonder if you can tell us thanks. a little bit about sport in your life
2: i uh, very excited to be here thanks for the introduction um and for your invitation to be here. Uh, sport in my life has been probably an exercise in frustration. <laughs> I, um, I played tennis in high school, and I ran track. And I was a much better tennis player than I was a track player. I was one point away in my doubles career from going to state. And that's, that's how tennis ended for me. Uh, but even though I was far better at tennis, I continued running, after high school into college, Uh, I ran for fun primarily until a a few friends of mine said that um, we should try to run a half marathon. And I thought they were joking, and they were serious. Mm. So I began running half marathons, and five and 10k races in college. Um, And, uh, and and was fairly decent at it. I didn't realize that um, that that was something I, I could do fairly well. And then I've actually gotten back into, to running, uh, races just recently. So I have a new half marathon coming up in, um, in college station doing the Oktoberfest next month. So it'll be interesting to see how I do because it's been, uh, more than a decade since I've run one of those.
0: You know, I feel like I should have known that, right. You have like an inner strength and a discipline to you that just speaks of like a running, a running background. So that, that, that that makes sense to me. That's good.
2: (laughs) Well, that's, that's very generous. I, uh, I I certainly enjoy it, um, and I'm interested to see how well I will do this time around.
0: Oh, that's great. That's great. Hey, tell us a little bit about faith in your life.
2: Faith has been an important part of my life from very early on. I was raised in the church, um, and I think for a long time, I felt that just being a part of church was, was what I was expected to do until around eighth grade. I had a youth minister come in, and he gave a Bible study where we talked about this passage in Revelation about being hot or being cold and being lukewarm. And he he had asked us previously to mark on this paper where you think you were in relation to God and the world. So I put myself right in the center and I thought that's really the best spot to be anyway. You can kind of get the best of both worlds. I wasn't going to be a, a saint and you know I wasn't going to like go off and murder people. So I thought that's probably where everyone should be. And then he shared later that if you are in the center or somewhere near it, it's actually the worst place you can be. And I was really struck by that. And of course, he shared that passage from Revelation about being lukewarm. And he said, you know, people who are who who claim no allegiance to following God or following Jesus, they're they're not a danger to anybody because they're not representing God to anybody else. And that was the first moment I feel like that I began to own my faith, where I I realized that following Jesus meant that I had to to make a choice, that I had to do something in my life that was not just kind of floating along. And so ever since then, faith has been uh, very important to me. I did college ministry when I got out of college. I went to seminary at Duke Divinity School, and then I got my PhD in New Testament here at Baylor. But all, um, all along the way, that spiritual component or lived spirituality has been very important to me.
1: Yeah, Brian, thank you for that. Um, I think Chad referred to your inner strength uh, being a runner. I would say inner inner craziness. Who knows? Why would you do such a thing, right? Um, I don't know if that's a compliment too. You know, runners generally take that. Uh, but your your faith story is one that um, starts to reveal certain aspects of yourself to our audience. And I'm wondering, if, is there something uh, that you could tell us about yourself that's just a little bit different, a little off the beaten path? Maybe a hobby, something um, that people wouldn't know about you uh, from your resume.
2: Sure. Well, when I turned forty, so I've already dated myself. I decided that I really wanted to learn an instrument. I missed the entire band phase that most people go through when when they're younger. I. I didn't join band, so I didn't ever learn how to play the trombone or the tuba or the trumpet or whatever that people did when they were in band. And I'd always wanted to engage musically, and I thought that playing the guitar would be a great, a great exercise and and something I would really enjoy. But it always seemed really intimidating. And when I turned forty, I thought if I don't do it now, I'm just never going to do it. And so I, I got a guitar. And I actually learned how to play watching YouTube, which has been fantastic. YouTube teaches me how to you know, do plumbing and how to fix wiring. And I learned how to play a guitar off of it. I don't play very well. Uh, so that, that's the caveat. But I've really enjoyed learning how to play guitar. It's, that's been a hobby that I I did not expect I would pick up at this point in
1: my life. Well, I love that, Brian. Um, first of all, you don't look 40. Um, secondly, I would say, or even over 40, uh, I mean, learning the guitar, it seems you know, pretty accessible. You, you pick it up, you put it on your lap, and off you go. But it is very difficult to, to pick up the guitar. And uh, you really have to have stick-to-itiveness, probably a lot like you're running. So congratulations. I, I can also hear a little bit of a country music voice in there. Uh, do you do the vocals?
2: I, I do do vocals, but I'm not a great singer either. Um, so that, that's very generous of you. Um I did do some some Taylor Swift to start because who not uh, We had uh, some pretty some pretty easy chords to, to start with. So thank you, Tyler. yeah.
1: I do it as well. It's in my car, but uh, yeah, very different. Um, I'm sure. So, uh, yeah, Brian, let's let's get started a little bit. You just came back from Cambridge, England, and you were uh, at the Global Congress on Sport and Christianity. I wonder if you could just reflect on that experience and tell us. Use that to let us know kind of what work you're doing right now.
2: Yeah, I went to this conference, the Third Global Congress in Sport and Christianity in Cambridge, and it was my first time attending one of the congresses, and it was a wonderful time. I really enjoyed seeing the way that different disciplines all came together to talk about their experience of sport and Christianity. I saw it from sociologists' perspective, from people who studied kinesiology, people who who look at it psychologically. Um, there were philosophers and theologians, and um, and I came at it from the angle of, of uh, biblical scholarship. So that was a, a really fascinating experience for me to see people having a common subject matter, but different disciplines and different ways into this conversation. And of course, being in Cambridge itself was was just unbelievable. So I had a great time there. Uh, I presented a paper on the understanding victory um, in terms of um, the way that the author of Revelation talks about conquering, this language of conquering. And, and what we see is that in in Revelation 5, there's, there's these two images that John presents to us. On the one hand, he shows us this lion. He says that the narrator's there and he's, he's weeping because no one's able to open these, the scroll that's in the right hand of God. And there's this lion that's revealed. The, the angel says, don't, don't weep. look there has, um, there's a lion from the tribe of Judah that has conquered. And that language of conquering is the same word in Greek that we get uh, that, that means victory. In any form, victory, overcoming, conquering, there's all kinds of different ways this gets translated. But it's where we get the, the word Nike from in English. It's nikao in Greek. And then later, immediately after that, uh, John says, I looked and I saw in the middle a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. And and seeing these two images together, I think, is a way that John is trying to redefine what conquering or winning or victory means from uh, specifically Christian perspective. So that's the paper I presented and, um, and I'm happy to talk about that more, but that was, um, yeah, the conference was great.
0: So let's delve more into this paper. Um, the t- the topic is, is a fascinating one. And of course, within, you know, Christian circles, sometimes sport is, is viewed with a bit of suspicion that uh, because, because conquering is so important, uh, betterment is important, whatever you want to call it. And, and here we have these images. And so I, I how did you, How did you explore those images, and and what did you come up with in terms of your arguments?
2: Well, what I wanted to do is look at the way that these two images are correlated. How do we make sense of those two images together? Because what John is presenting to us is a picture of Jesus as a lion, as a conquering lion, and also a slaughtered lamb. But clearly the slaughtered lamb is the important image for John because that's the one that continues throughout the rest of Revelation and the conquering lion never reappears. So the question is, how do you relate these two images? And I, and I looked at three different ways that that this has traditionally been done. Three different kind of answers to this. And one is that um, Jesus was first this conquering lion, and then he becomes... Um, or if I'm sorry, he was first a a slaughtered lamb then he becomes a conquering lion that, um, he has to go through this kind of suffering and this kind of humiliation. And then later he becomes enthroned with power. That's one way of looking at it. Another way is that Jesus is a lion or a lamb, depending on who you are. So if you are part of the righteous, if you're part of the, the Jesus people, then, then great. Jesus is your slaughtered lamb who forgives your sins. But if not, then Jesus is this this fierce lion out to out to defeat you. And then the last way I think that I looked at it is that sometimes people look at it to say, well, Jesus appears as a slaughtered lamb, but he's really behind a conquering lion. And so these three different images I, I think are all incorrect. I think they're all not the way that John is trying to present this. Um, I think that in each of these cases, there's a preposition um, after uh, the the lamb and then the lion uh, so there's a temporal element one is uh, bifurcated either or the lion or the lamb and the other is behind behind this image of a lamb is really a lion and i think what john is wanting to do is to say that that the lamb is the lion and the lion is the lamb and that's a much more difficult claim it's a it's a paradoxical claim about it, what it means to to overcome and all those other instances the idea what it means to win or to to conquer or to overcome—that's what's fixed, and we've got to figure out how to how to organize those images in the way that I think John is doing it. He's wanting to play with this notion of victory itself, wanting to redefine what it means to win.
1: So <clears throat> I was in your session, Brian. It was um, <clears throat> it was fascinating. I love how you you started with that Revelation um, reading, and then you took it. Sorry, <clears throat> excuse me to the set of explanations that you thought were inaccurate or off the beaten path and and kind of really pulled that together to say, we have a different image here. And I think what struck, uh, stuck with me the most was this idea of the continuing image of, of the, of the slaughtered lamb. And you use the word slaughtered pretty intentionally, right? The, the idea that it's not just a lamb, um, in terms of its meekness or conformity and so on. It was more about its slaughteredness continuing as it went forward. And you were trying to sort of change the perception of possibly who Christ is and what victory means in uh, reference to that um, victory of Christ, right? The way that Christ defined victory. And I'm wondering as you walk that forward and think about it in connection to sport, are you talking about an entirely different set of parameters? I mean, are we talking about sort of life victory or do you think that there is some sort of link or connection to the athlete, to the to the athlete who identifies with this slaughtered lamb?
2: That's a great question. And I, I do want to connect it. Well, I do think, I think it's both is the answer to your question. I do think that there are obviously ways in which victory or overcoming is something that happens outside the sphere of athletics for the athlete. But I don't want to vacate the meaning that would also have for the athlete herself or himself. So that what I really want to avoid is the sense that in the Christian life, everything is winning. Um, And that is what I often sense from people that because Jesus has overcome, because Jesus has won, Therefore, all of my life is basically just um, unbridled victory and winning. And so if I don't see it right now, then then it's coming or I'm experiencing another form. And what that does, I think, is it forces us to ignore failure and loss. And so for the athlete, what I would say is, is there a way in which they can engage with their loss or their failure? not to turn it into a victory right away, not to find some way to rehabilitate it or to, to move it off, but to engage it as loss, uh, as slaughter, perhaps. And that in doing so, to see that the way in which they engage that as loss and as failure can be, in that way, victory. And so the, the difference I, I, I try to talk about in my talk is the difference between seeing victory as a, as a goal, as, a, as an endpoint on a journey, versus a way of being. And I think that what John is arguing in Revelation is that what it means to overcome is to be a certain way, but that being a certain way will involve loss. It will involve failure and it will involve um, sometimes humiliation. And I think that for a lot of, a lot of Christians and a lot of people in general, we want to move beyond that. Um, And so I, what, what I want to say to this is I think that there is actually a, an important point to be made here in, um, in the Greek of John's text. So he uses this phrase esphagmenon, which is a Greek word that means has been slaughtered. But it, the form of it is a perfect participle. And if you, if you nerd out on all the language of Greek, what a perfect participle means is something that happened in the past that continues to have ongoing relevance for the present. And that I think is a perfect picture of what it means for Jesus to have been slaughtered, has been slaughtered and continues to be slaughtered. So the, the crucified, humiliated Christ continues even in his resurrected state to be crucified, to be slaughtered. It doesn't mean that resurrection abolishes that it doesn't take it away, but it does transform it. It does. It it twists and turns it. and, And we obviously see resurrection or our crucifixion, in a new light now but it doesn't mean that he ever stops being crucified and in the same way i would want to suggest that that the christian athlete's loss or failure is capable of being transformed but that but that we we too often stop before we get to that point and we want to replace it with with another kind of obvious victory or obvious success now, what that looks like in each individual's life, I think is hard. It's hard to say. And this is the the question I always get from people is, well, what, you know, Here, here's an example of when I, I played basketball and I missed the shot that would have won it for the whole team. And um, and that was it. And we lost, um, we lost our conference. We lost this really important game. And in that moment, um, you know, how can I, how can I salvage that moment into something that feels victorious? Um, and I don't know that that the Christian story always tells us the way in which that happens, that, that that we get an obvious victory out of that. But the way in which we engage in that, the way in which we absorb loss and failure, I think is what John talks about as this kind of overcoming. So I, I know that was a lot of, a lot of words and maybe more than more than you wanted on that.
0: No, it's maybe, it's maybe just, just getting the tip of the iceberg here in terms of what we want. It, it sounds to me if we were to simplify this for the christian athlete if you win you win if you lose you win and i know it's it's of course deeper than that but there's something to be there's something there's something to be learned through through loss of course and and sort of living in you know experiencing that loss and fullness and what it is but knowing that um, that that when one is an athlete in christ that that it, it's it's victory already and it continues to be victory through through the slaughter of the lamb i think i'm i think i'm hearing some sense of that but i wonder if you can if you can articulate that better than what i than what i just said
2: right well i i do agree with what you said but i think that there's a way of saying it that can ignore or neuter the the idea which is that if you say to win is to win and to lose is to win if you say that uncritically, I think what happens for many people is they think, oh, well, then my loss doesn't matter. I can I can ignore my loss. I can ignore my failure. It doesn't matter that that I, I was terribly beaten. And so it's really a way of closing one's eyes, I think, to the situation rather than living in the middle of what is a very perhaps humiliating or crushing loss that you have to go through. And I think that the... Um, the pattern of saying well if i lose i still win cuz cuz jesus has won for me it can it can circumvent that we can go around that experience and not actually go through loss which is also a way of saying oh yeah jesus was crucified and that's that's not the important part but let's let's get to the part where he wins and he comes back in glorious light and jesus was resurrected we we proclaim that as christians but he was resurrected precisely as one who has been crucified and he remains crucified um and likewise in John, he remains slaughtered. He remains the slaughtered lamb, but that's what it means to be victorious. And so for the for the Christian, what I would want to say is um, practically, first of all, there there is a truth in saying, if we lose, we still win. But you have to go through this really, I think, complex deconstruction of that idea before you can reappropriate it, um, as in all kinds of truths. Um, you know... Um, it's one thing to hear Socrates say, well, um, I'm the wisest person because I realized I didn't know anything. And we can hear that as an aphorism and say, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. And I, I can see the truth of that. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to actually experience the reality that I don't, I don't really know anything. And that, that's a very different existential experience than being able to just parrot what Socrates said. And, and likewise, I think that to say that if I lose, I still win, there's, there's truth in that. But there's a way of saying that actually denies the truth of that because I have denied actually experiencing loss, sitting in loss, and sitting in a failure that I can't turn into a success. I can't – and that's what I would suggest is um, for Christians who experience that, Christian athletes, to – to not immediately move to the place where, okay, I I had this this terrible experience. Let me figure out how to salvage it. How let me figure out how to turn it into something that's victorious. I feel like that's a very, especially in American culture, we we really want to make everything into a victory. And this is um, we see this no more clearly than I think in job interviews, or people ask us uh, what are our what are our weaknesses, and we want to list the weaknesses as basically strengths. Well, I care too much. And, uh, and I clearly love my job too much. I'm going to be in the office all the time, and, uh, and I just I really like people a lot. Well, that, that may all be true, but that's not really what the question is asking. It's asking about the kinds of flaws that you have. Um, and I realize it's a very different context, but for the athlete, what I would want to say is to not move immediately to the place where they, they can blot out this experience of loss and failure, but but to engage in it, to to consume it, to drink it down, and to sit with it, and to find the ways in which it does, it is capable of being, being victory. But it's not because you've reached a, a point; you haven't gotten to a certain point, but your engagement with it is precisely the victory. So, in in Revelation, later when John writes about about the martyrs, he says that they overcame. By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, but they die. <laughs> that's, that's the point to be made: is that they they die. Um, they are also slaughtered, and and in many ways, like that, that's the end of their story. It's only in this eschatological drama or this this uh, poetics that we see are they are they vindicated, it, which looks very different. So, so, of course, we have the advantage of seeing that vision from John. But you don't have that vision now. That if I go out with the blood of the lamb and the word of testimony, I'm going to win. You just die. Uh, and likewise, there is a way in which there is an eschatological victory for the Christian athlete, but that's not going to be manifest right away. When when you uh, when you're a runner and you trip and fall over the over the hurdles, and that's it, and your your chance is over. I think it's inappropriate to suddenly apply the eschatological victory of God. To that to say well that doesn't matter because it did matter because that's that's a terrible experience but finding the way in which that experience thing can be transformed i think that is the that's the hard thing to do and uh, and again i don't have there's not a formula to apply to that uh, in the same way there's not a formula to apply to what it means to to learn that you don't know anything like socrates you have to just go through and experience it
1: well brian when um when you brought up you know the Job interview, I thought of, you know, Chad often saying he's just too good looking. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That is uh, one of those things. Yeah. So, but I would just say to you, I, I really appreciate your reluctance to connect every single dot um in this conversation and in, in some ways there is a push in athletics and and even in sport and Christianity for us to take these larger concepts and try to boil them into our current circumstance in such one to one ways that we sort of lose the larger point or the larger picture and some of the things it sort of occurs to me that you're you're kind of mind bending you're saying this is a slaughtered lamb and it is not your vision of victory, which was a lion. And, and and Jesus did the same, right? The last shall be first. That didn't make any sense to us at all, right? You have to, to gain your life. You have to lose it. These are the kinds of sort of paradoxes that uh, are consistent in having a revolutionary way of looking at ourselves, uh, at the world, through the lens of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and the, the last part of that is his redemption. And, I, and what I wonder is, like, there is sort of that known victory, that known resurrection, right? That moment of resurrection and victory. And it is a, it's a compelling point in the Christian story that life doesn't end, right? That it co- carries on, that there's victory over death. How would you uh, sort of take the language of the slaughtered lamb and put it next to that other knowledge of really victory over death. That's part of the, that, uh, good news story.
2: That's a great question. Um, and I'll, I'll be tentative in my response to this because, um, I mean, ultimately I, I don't know, uh, how to apply, you know, again, the eschatological language of resurrection to, to our life very easily. We are left with pictures in scripture and, and metaphor, um, there is this—well, first of all, what I want to say is that, again, I would stress that it is very easy, I think, for us when we, when we engage in God talk or theology to want to use known fixed points of our own human experience to then to tell us or explain what God must be like. Uh, and that's, that's not really the way it works. God, God is beyond our language and our concepts, and we, when we speak of God, we speak of God analogically. And so, for example, we speak of God as Father— uh, and God is like a father. But of course, we, we run afoul of that if we think that God sired a son in the same way that humans do. Like that's now we've gone off the rails um, or even that, um, you know, that God um, uh, experiences the birth of a child the way that uh, I'm a father. And um, I, I went through that experience, but that's that's different. And so we're speaking analogically of God when we talk about God as father. Likewise, when we talk about the victory of God, we're also speaking analogically. And this is where I think the message of Paul from 1 Corinthians is helpful, which is where he says um, that the weakness of God is stronger than human strength, and the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And what he's saying, I think, is that there's a, there's a way of turning these ideas on their heads so that I don't want to look at God through the lens that I've constructed to say this is what God must be like. So with that in mind, I think that one of the things that we can think about when we look at resurrection language with the slaughtered lamb is the way in which our assumptions about what it must be like to be resurrected or to be victorious or to be vindicated must be like, and we apply that to resurrection language. And let me give you an example of this. Um, I believe it was Karl Barth in one of his correspondences was discussing with somebody about resurrection, the resurrected body specifically. And there was a discussion about um, this, this man who had a daughter who was, um, who was disabled and couldn't walk from birth. And the question was, in the resurrection, will this child walk? Will, will she have a fully functioning body? And, and the, the pushback was, well, you know, we all assume that the ability to walk is the norm. And that, of course, someone who's, who's crippled, who can't walk, In the resurrection, they'll they'll be healed of that ailment, and they'll be able to walk around like the rest of us. But maybe there's a sense in which we learn something deeply human and deeply divine about what it means to care for someone who can't walk. So will this child walk in the resurrection? Maybe or maybe not, but what would it look like to be in a redeemed community, in redeemed humanity, but the person doesn't walk? What would that look like? Why do we assume that walking would be the norm? So I, 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 give no, um, I, I have no opinion about the reality of that one way or the other in the resurrection, but I find that discussion helpful because it challenges our notions of what uh, a resurrected body should be like instead of asking, well, what would it be like if God was fully present in a community of people? And so, likewise, I think that that resurrection language of Jesus challenges what it is like um, for us to apply that to victory. So, in the same way, Jesus's uh, resurrection, of course, as we know from the Gospels, is um, is not a body that has been completely eradicated of all of all um, sign of of weakness. He still bears the wounds on his hands and on his side. Those don't go away in resurrection. And so, that's kind of a enigmatic sign about perhaps what resurrection is like not the removal or the um the overcoming entirely or the blotting out of of weakness failure and loss but it's transformation and so likewise if we're going to get again specific about athletics and sports what would it look like um for a loss or for uh some failure on an athlete's part not to just suddenly be turned into a w in the eschaton so that now you know i i lost state but with Jesus, it becomes a win. And when I when I get resurrected, then um, you know now I'm a winner. But it's still a loss. But now I can engage with it or understand it differently, or I can understand maybe why that loss is more significant than winning. And and again, now we're we're straining at language because I don't I don't know what that's going to look like or what um, resurrection experience is like. But I I do think that that language challenges us to to uh to turn that on its head
0: well i'm fascinated by the ways in which you're articulating some of these concepts and it makes me all the more sad that i wasn't able to be in your session a- in cambridge um, we've got this community growing that started in york in 2016 and we met again in 2019 in grand rapids cambridge in 2022 and now you'll be part of the hosting uh crew at baylor in 2025 we're so looking forward to that and to uh the greater discussions that will continue in the meantime in the lead up to baylor i wonder if you can share a little bit with us about uh about the plans for the fourth global congress on sport and christianity down in in baylor and, and what we might be able to expect from that
2: absolutely well we are very excited and very honored to um, to serve as hosts for the next global Congress it's a it's a deep honor for us and um, and we feel that we're inheriting a long tradition that has been established and set up by, by people like yourself that we want to, to honor going forward um, and we we sense a deep burden of, of being able to provide a great experience for people so we take that very seriously one of the things that we are imagining doing uh, this is all, Still early, we we're several years away from this. But what we would like to do at this point in our thinking is to offer a conference that explores the past, present, and future of the conversation around Christianity and sports. And so, looking at where we have been in this conversation uh, in the past, what kind of challenges and questions and issues that we are facing right now as a community. And then what are some of the ways we can address this in the future or what might be on the horizon in the future that we haven't yet considered or really come to grapple with? So that's a that's a big picture of what we'd like to do. Um, Probably different days. So having a day for the past, a day for the present and a day for the future. And um, we really want to have a place where both academics and practitioners can come together and to speak about those issues together. So we're exploring what that's going to look like, and and we hope to have a really exciting conference uh, for everybody in a few years.
1: Well, Brian, we are as excited as you that uh, the Global Congress um, that has run now three times, the fourth Global Congress, will be at Baylor University um, in uh, three years and uh, we're excited that you're heading that up and, and part of a team that's going to pull that off. And, and we know it'll be fantastic. I love the direction. The uh, past, present, future has great potential. And I hope we um, can see some of that sort of play out in ways that are in, in some ways unexpected, right? We're, we always want to look at new frontiers and figure out uh, different ways to think about this uh, very intriguing subject that we all love. So uh, we really appreciate that, and we appreciate you being on this podcast with us on Sport Faith Life. Thanks so much. It's been wonderful to hear just a little bit about your uh, paper. We're we're waiting for the next one. That was uh, really fun to hear this first time around, and we're excited for the work that you've done.
2: Thanks so much for having me, both of you. A great honor. So glad to be here.
1: Thanks for listening to the Sport Faith Life podcast. Find previous episodes at sportfaithlife.com and on Apple Podcasts. We're releasing each episode with a blog post authored by our guests, so you can find the blog for this podcast and other posts at the same website, sportfaithlife.com.